Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. On the nature of who the Holy Spirit is, week one, the one thing that I wanted you guys to walk away is that the Holy Spirit dwells in you and that he is a person. He is not an it. And I told you my pet peeve is when people call the Holy Spirit it, because when you call him it, you remove the personal relationship that you can have with him. And the second week, we spoke a lot about the role of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to point us to Christ. The role of the Holy Spirit is he is there to remind us of the things which Christ has taught us. So first he dwells in us, and he wants to have a relationship with us, and he wants to point us to the things which Christ has taught us. And then last week, Abuna Paul spoke about being filled with the Spirit. He spoke a lot about, can you guys hear me? Awesome. All right, no need for a handheld anymore. Awesome. We, we spoke, Abuna Paul last week spoke to you guys about the story of Elisha and Elijah. And we have, that's not foreign for us because we have Elisha and Elijah in this church. So Abuna Paul gave you guys the story of Elisha and Elijah about how when one is really hungry and yearning to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that the Lord answers. This week I want to focus with you guys on one of the most famous passages in Scripture on the Holy Spirit. It's Galatians chapter 5. Now, I'm going to go in-depth into Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to try to take it down verse by verse. And my hope is that by the end of this discussion, we can be encouraged by what the Holy Spirit is asking each and every one of us to do. We know, if I were to say, what does Galatians 5 highlight? You will say, the fruit of the Spirit. Every single person. We all know the song, the fruit of the Spirit. You all learned it as little kids. You know the songs. You guys have, have it memorized. The thing is, is what does it actually mean? What does it actually mean to walk in the Spirit and to live in the fruit of the Spirit? The first thing that I want to focus on is as we enter into Galatians chapter 5, I want to have a caveat. Most important thing in our relationship with God is to know that we are free. To know that we are free. To know that being in a relationship with Christ is not one that should be a burden one that should hinder us, one that we often, sometimes when people say, Abuna, I don't want to follow Jesus, I don't want to be in a relationship with God because it's a joy kill. It's going to cause me to have to change a lot of things about my life. It's going to cause me to no more have no fun anymore. But I want you to know that the role, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to tell us that we are free, is to remind us of the liberty that we have in Christ. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Actually, it's mounted on that wall behind you all in that beautiful picture that was created during the grad retreat this past year. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. It doesn't say bondage. Notice, it doesn't say stealing of freedom. It says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the, the role of the Holy Spirit is to tell us that we are free. The role of the Holy Spirit is to not make the commandments of Christ burdensome, 
The role of the Holy Spirit is to encourage us. The role of the Holy Spirit is to teach us actually how free we are in Christ. But look how it happens. It happens from glory to glory. It happens system, like season by season, process by process. It doesn't happen in a snap of a finger overnight. See, freedom can only be found truly by submitting to God. True freedom can only be found by being in loving union with God. And I think people will say, no, Abuna, freedom is by me being financially free, by me having enough money in my bank account and my 401k, and, I'm, and as long as I have money, I am good. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. But I want to be able to nuance the difference between internal freedom and external freedom. I, wanna, I want you to understand that you may have all the money in the world. You may have every possible thing that you would ever want, but that doesn't mean you're free. Because in fact, you may be held down by achieving the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And again, I'll say this over and over and over again. Psychologists talk about the hedonic treadmill. They talk about how when one gets one thing, immediately it loses its luster very quickly. So you're always searching after the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So the reality is, are we actually free? Even in the worldly standard, is there anyone that's actually free? The richest people in the world, are they free? Not really, because they're living according to someone else's expectations of them. They're living according to what people demand of them. If you're a billionaire, you want to be the richest billionaire. If you're number two, you're chasing after number one. If you're number five, you're chasing after number four. There's always this constant pursuit of the next thing. So the reality is, we have this deception that freedom is in something external. But the reality is freedom is something internal. And that's where the Lord is longing for every single one of us to have that type of freedom. I want to tell you guys a quote from a really beautiful book called Interior Freedom by a Catholic priest named Father Jacques Philippe. He has this quote where he says, Our freedom is, in fact, proportionate to the love and childlike trust that we have from our Heavenly Father. Look at this. Our freedom is proportionate to the love and childlike trust that we have from our heaven, for our Heavenly Father. Let me ask you a question. Why is that true? If you really, really trust someone, if you really have a relationship with someone that is super intimate, are you worried? Are you, like, scared about what the outcome will be in that relationship? You trust. And because you trust, you're able to surrender and give and offer more and more. Look what he says. The living experience of the saints is there to encourage us. They gave themselves to God without reserve, wanting only to do his will. In return, they received the sense of enjoying an immense freedom, which nothing in the world can take away from them, and which was the source of intense joy. How can somebody who is a saint, someone who is martyred, somebody who is being persecuted for Christ, say that they're free? Because you can take, you can wound my flesh, you can take away my riches, you can do anything to me, but you can't control what's within. You can't control how I choose to respond. And that's why, even when you look at the, the, the various Coptic priests and bishops that were incarcerated during the Sadat era, you see that they were behind bars. And if you read Father Luke Sidros' book about the prison and what it was like, he said that the prison was like literally like a four-by-four four room. And in that prison, what did they do? They turned that prison into an altar. They turned that prison into a place in which they 
were glorified, and Christ was glorified in them. They turned that, pri- that, that prison into a place where God dwelt. Even St. Paul, remember when he was in prison? They chained him to the guards. And the guards were there. And who was the one that was actually held hostage? St. Paul or the person who was listening to him preach the whole entire night? St. Paul was like, oh, you're going to hold me in chains? I'm going to make sure by the end you know Jesus. Listen, you tie a person who's filled with the Spirit and you put him in any circumstance or her in any place, it doesn't matter the external. What matters is the internal. It doesn't matter what situation you put that person in. They know that they are free. See, the beginning of Galatians chapter 5 actually starts with this verse. Stand fast or stand firm. Therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. You'll see Christ actually uses that imagery. For my my yoke is heavy, but my burden is sweet. Right? You'll see that he uses that language and that kind of visualization. Yoke is what you would take two animals and you would yoke them together and have them walk together in, in synchrony. Right? And that yoke was heavy. That's how that yoke is what would make that animal be able to carry the person who was sitting on them. And it was common in Judaism, by the way, to talk about having the study of learning the law as taking on the yoke. Like, do you know this? I'll tell you guys something really interesting. Do you know that there are over 613 Jewish laws? 613. When they take the five books of Moses, they were able to to nuance them into 613 different laws. And they divided the list into two, affirmative commands and negative commands. So do this and don't do this. Imagine 613 commands, a law for every single thing. And there was 248 affirmative commands, one for every part of your body. Every part of your body, there's a command. What you should do with your eyes, what you should do with your hands, what you should do with your lips. Do you guys even know? This is crazy. Do you know that there is a prayer in Judaism for when you go to the bathroom? I'm not joking. It's actually beautiful. I read it and I was like, wow, this is amazing. Oh, you who opens up and closes. You who's able, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing, I'm not being funny. It's funny, but I'm not being funny. It's funny. They incorporate God into every single thing, but they, it's not, hey, God, welcome. Welcome you into making sure that I can use my facilities. No, it's, I pray this because this is what the law tells me to do. There's 365 negative commands, one for each Don't do this, one for each day of the year. So time and time again, you see that the yoke of bondage actually is that you have all this very detailed step by step. Do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. So it seems like following God is a set of rules. But St. Paul, you go back, he says, do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Do not get caught up in the Judaic form of Christianity. Don't get caught up in being a bunch of people that follow a set of rules and miss out on the person who desires to give you freedom. Look what he says in verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Spirit speaks on your heart, being able to say, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir of God through Christ. What is this saying here? It's saying, yes, you could have a relationship with God that is one of following a set of rules. 
But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. So if my relationship with God is predicated on me doing a set of rules, then I'm missing the whole point. God is not about rules. God is about relationship. And if you focus on rules and you miss relationship in the process, you miss the whole point of the whole thing. When God was writing the law through the books of Moses, he was writing the law to teach them how they ought to walk because they didn't know anything. They didn't know what to do right or left. They were infants. So the law was given to them to encourage them and to support them and to teach them how to walk in a relationship with God. But once Christ came and dwelt among them, he taught them the way to live. And when you see time and time again, Christ is basically didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and to teach them how to live by the law. So you see, the most important thing is that you are no longer slaves, but children of God. And a child, one of the most important things is that we remember there are different ways that we can approach God. And I'll be honest with you, many of us, we approach God in one of these three mediums. These three mediums are offered as sort of the way that, I call them like the relational evolution. So many people will approach God like a slave. They approach God like a slave, and they are moved by fear. So my relationship with you, God, is me doing all the right thing because I'm scared of what you are going to do to me. I'm scared of hell. I'm scared of what the outcome of my life will be like. I'm scared that all of a sudden, like if I do something wrong, a lightning bolt will strike and hit me. How many of you guys have thought that at some point? Am I the only one? That your relationship with God, like, oh my gosh, I can't do this because all of a sudden a lightning bolt will help hit me or I'll get into a car accident. As if God is like this vindictive monster in the sky who's like pulling strings to try to harm us. So we're moved by fear. I want to tell you that that relationship is the most elementary relationship. You know, in the beginning when you have a child, you want to inspire your children or teach your children a little bit of the fear. So you do this, you're going to get punished. You do this, you get a little bit of a spanking. Right? Although now, a respectful parenting, and you know, you kneel down and you look in the kid in the eye and you say, I don't like that you're doing that. I know it's, believe me, old fashioned Egyptian way was you get a spanking on the beat, on the behind, and you learn not to do that. I'm not, I'm not promoting abuse. Please don't say that I'm saying. I'm just saying, we've gotten a little bit too weak with our parenting these days. Just kidding. Not really, but just kidding. So some are moved by, some are moved by fear. Then you have the next phase, which is you approach God like a servant. And those who approach God like a servant are moved by reward. So, okay, maybe God, I'm not so scared of you anymore. Okay, I, I know that you're loving. I know that you're merciful. I know that you're compassionate. I know that you long for me. But I'm going to come to you because they say you're rich. They say that you have the whole world in the palm of my hand, in your hands. So can you hook me up with this? Can you take care of this exam? Can you take care of this relationship? Can you make sure that my stock portfolio increases by 8 to 10% every single year? Can you, and God becomes what? A genie in a bottle. Your three wishes are my command. This is not Aladdin. This is the real life. This is truly how many Christians approach God. So we approach God in what we can get out of him. So I'll serve you, God. And now, you know what? I'm going to teach Sunday school. And you know what? I even am going to be a deacon. And you know what? I'm going to attend service after service after service in hope that if I do this, it will cause you to pay me back for my labor towards you. So actually, the relationship is not a relationship. It's transactional. If I do this for you, you do this for me. Is that a relationship? 
So the next phase is that of a servant. But the real, real relationship is that of a son or a daughter, one that is moved by love, that, Lord, I don't care. I don't care what my circumstances are like. I'm not afraid of you because I know that you came, dwelt amongst us. I know that you took on my brokenness in order to give me your life. I know that you were wounded for my transgressions. You were crushed for my sin. The punishment that was supposed to be upon me was upon you, and by your wounds, I'm healed. I know that reality. So I know the fact that you love me so much. And because you love me so much, the only thing I can do is offer myself back to you as a living sacrifice. The only thing I can offer up back to you is my devotion. The only thing I can offer back to you is my love towards you. The only thing that I can do is serve you. So I'm not moved by fear. I'm not moved by reward. I'm moved by love. Look what Galatians 5 says, verse 5 and 6. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Circumcision or uncircumcision is basically following legality avails anything. So if I follow everything, if I come to you as a slave or as a servant, that avails nothing. But faith working through love. Faith working through love. Look what St. John Chrysostom says. He says something really beautiful. He says, we need none of those legal observances. He says, faith suffices to obtain for us the spirit and by him righteousness and many and great benefits. He strikes them here with a great blow by showing that it is their failure to be rooted in the love for Christ that has given entrance to this error. For what is looking what is looking for for what is looking for is not only faith, but also faith abiding in love. It is as though he said, Had you loved Christ as you ought, you would not have gone voluntarily into slavery. You would not have insulted your deliverer. Look what St. John Chrysostom says here. He says, you don't need to observe those legal observances. You don't need to be worried about following this in order to get this. But if I have faith, if I have true faith, if I have a real relationship with God, all these things are the byproduct of it. All the, all the laws that God has given to us, every single one of them, if you're a slave or you're a servant, you see them as rules. If you're a son, you see them as cautions. You see them as signposts along the way. You see them as mediums by which God is trying to direct you towards the truth. God is trying to direct you towards a real encounter with him. Let me give you an example. Thou shall not steal. Okay, God, like, what's the big deal if I steal? What's the big deal if I steal from the man? big department store, or I steal from somebody who has a lot. What's the big deal? It's not about them. It's about you. It's not about you taking from someone. It's about what happens to you when you learn that it's okay to take from someone else. It dilutes, actually, your integrity. Thou shall not lie. Thou shall not murder. Thou shall not bear false witness. All of these things God is trying to say to you, when you do them, you're not harming the other. Yes, you are, but you're harming yourself first and foremost. Because when we get into the condition of doing things that we ought not to do, what it does is it has a greater ramification on our own souls. So these laws are signposts from God to caution us, to direct us, to teach us. If you lie, you become a liar. And what happens when you become a liar? You become inauthentic. 
And when you become inauthentic, nobody actually knows who you are. And nobody wants to be around somebody who's fake, correct? So God is giving us signposts along the way to encourage us and to teach us the tr- to, to walk in the truth, to live the way that he created us to live because one who lives as a servant or a slave is missing out on the real purpose, which is love. He says in verse 7 and 8, you ran well, he's talking to the church of Galatia, you ran well, who hindered you? from obeying the truth. Okay, all of us, we grew up in the church. All of us have received the Holy Spirit. All of us have been taught. And we ran well. What hindered you? Who hindered you? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What was the the, the stopping point that made each and every one of us at certain points in our lives say to ourselves, you know what? No. I don't want to follow that. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to live according to what God asks me to do. Because if I do, it's going to require me Again, to have to do things differently. And he says, the persuasion does not come from him who calls you. Don't ever think that God is the one who is orchestrating you to not follow the truth. Don't ever for a second think that your temptations or your struggles or your disobedience comes from God. We actually pray and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. We actually ask in that part of the prayer of the Lord's Prayer, we're saying, Lord, don't let me find myself in a situation in which you are not with me to help me get out of. He's not the one who hinders us from obeying the truth. The reason that we are hindered by obeying the truth is because the servant-slave relationship only can last for a certain period of time. It only can last for a certain period of time. It only can last where you are doing all the right things all the time out of no motivation but yourself or fear. It only lasts for a period. But real love lasts. Love never fails. Love endures. Love hopes all things, bears all things, believes all things. Love never fails. So when love is the catalyst by which we do everything, it doesn't fade away. Look what St. John, again, I like St. John Chrysostom. He says, these are not words of one who asks a question, but of one who's at loss and grieving. How was so great a race cut short? Who had the strength to do such a thing? You were superior to all. He's speaking to the church of Galatia. You were superior to all and were in position of teachers and have not remained even in position of disciples. You, the church of Galatia, were given so much. You were invested in so much. God poured out so much into you through his apostles, and you were supposed to receive and become teachers. What hindered you? What moved you to walk away from the truth? You were supposed to be teachers, and now you haven't even remained as disciples. What a shame, church of Galatia. What a shame, God investing so much And the outcome is people walk away from the faith. What a shame so many people in this church, year after year, come and after a period of time they walk away and leave. Whose fault is that? Is it ours? Is it theirs? Is it all of us? See, the thing truly that makes one walk away from the faith is when there is compromise. When there's compromise. St. Paul says it very clearly. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Again, I'm taking Galatians chapter 5 and we're going through this journey. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Ah, what's the big deal? The world is changing. Come on, get get with the program. Church, evolve. It's okay to do all these different things. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? You start to open up, you leave a door cracked. For sin to enter, it starts to leaven the whole lump. 
You take a little bit of yeast. I like St. Paul's imagery here. You take a little bit of yeast and you put it in your baking products. What happens? That sucker is going to rise. That sucker is going to take over the whole entire loaf. The whole entire thing. A little yeast. You see, when you make our bun, you put a little bit of yeast, what happens? It's amazing. It makes this beautiful loaf. But you, put a, you leave a little crack opened. Like those who've walked in the Spirit, those who've encountered God, those who've loved Him, who've responded to Him by love, you leave a little door open, what happens? It starts to take over. Somebody will say to me, Abuna, I never thought in my wildest dreams I would have an affair. I never thought I'd ever find myself being in this situation. I never found myself ever thinking that I would be, dis- I would be this disobedient to this point to God. I never thought in this point in my life I'd ever be addicted to pornography. I never thought in my wildest dreams I'd be judging and gossiping and have so much rift with my children and my family, etc. Fill in the blank. I never thought in my wildest dreams. We left a little room open. We weren't serious. In 375, the Apostolic Constitutions, they wrote something really beautiful. They said, For the greater number of offenders there are, the greater is the mischief that is done by them. For sin, which passes without correction, grows worse and worse. Sin, which passes without correction, grows worse and worse and spreads to others. Since a little leaven infects the whole lump. I'm not trying to be harsh here today. I'm not trying to be... I'm just saying, if we want to really be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to be serious. We have to be serious. Be free and be in liberty, but there's a pause. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. Do not say, I'm free to do whatever I want, and God forgives me, and God loves me, so I'm going to use this as an opportunity to do whatever I want when I want. But through love, serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, there was a Pharisee that came to the Lord. And he was one of the lawyers who really investigated the 614 laws in detail. And he comes to the Lord and he asks him a question, testing him. This is from Matthew 22. And he says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? You know, we have very nuanced. We have a nuance for what you do with your right hand, what you do with left, what your eyes. What is your greatest commandment? What should you do? Which is the most important? Everybody wants to find out a little bit of a loophole in the system. Like, I, I can do this, this, and this, and this, but what about this? And Jesus says to him, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. First, he says, this is the first and great commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all your might heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the what? The law and the prophets. On these two. Christ takes something very complicated, very intricate, 614 laws, nuance, details. And he says, listen, all of this was pointing to you to encourage you to do two things, to love God and to love your neighbor. And if you love God, you know how loved you are by him. And if you know how loved you are by him, the natural condition is you want to go out and love others. So if you're free, don't use it as an occasion to do what you want to please the flesh. He's saying if you're free, use it as an occasion to love others. Use it as an occasion to serve others. Use it as an occasion to really encourage those around you. Let's continue on. Walk in the Spirit. 
Again, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Living in the way of the Spirit is what every single one of us deeply wants. Every single one of us deeply wants to have a relationship with God, and to be free and not to be moved by what the world is desiring and asking of us. Every single one of, one of us know that when we are living apart from God, there is something that is missing. That's why St. Augustine is able to say, our hearts are restless, O God, until they rest in you. That's why he knew that no matter how far he was, he, did, he knew no matter where he was in life that something was missing. And every single person in this world, they know that when they are not living in God, something's missing. If you walk in the Spirit, know that there is going to be competing desires. And every single one of us, there is this tug-of-war match always that's happening. This tug-of-war is, I, I want to do something, but I, I want to do something else. I want to do something, but I want to do something. And there is this tug-of-war match between the flesh and the Spirit. Tug-of-war match between the flesh and the Spirit. And I know, I know, I know that God loves me. I know God cares about me. I know that God longs for me. And I want to live in the Spirit. And I want to walk in the Spirit. And I don't want to fulfill the lust in the flesh. But somehow I find this tug-of-war match that is happening. But look what he says in verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. One of the most important things is changing the perspective. If you see it as fear, and if you see it as, as servanthood, slavery and servanthood, you're missing the whole point. But if you understand it as sonship, if you know that you are free, if you know that you are loved, love moves. Love is the greater catalyst from all things. Love will always be the inspiring force for us to do that which will gladden the heart of God. I want to actually define what the lust of the flesh means. A lot of us often think lust of the flesh is actually like a like negative thing. Follow me for a second. Youth epithumia. Epithumia. It's the Greek word for what is actually being said here. It means an over-desire, an inordinate desire, an all-controlling drive and longing. Can you have an over-desire for only bad things? Can you have an over-desire for what we perceive as good things? Can you have an over-desire for things that sometimes take priority over God? Can you have an over-desire that are deemed as righteous things that oftentimes are hindering you from making God actually God? Some of the church fathers will say every single one of us has a God, whether you like it or not. Whether you're an atheist, atheist, agnostic, whether you're a believer, every single person has a God. The one who takes priority above all things. So maybe my relationship has taken priority. Maybe my kids have taken priority. Maybe my, my, my drive and my desire to succeed in life has taken priority. It looks as an over-desire. The lust of the flesh is not always sinful things. The lust of the flesh is, look at what it says here. This is from the Journal of Biblical Counseling. He says, If idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, then desires, epithumia, the word that's used for lust of the flesh, is the characteristic and summary of the New, for New Testament word, word, word for the same drift. The New Testament merges the concept of idolatry and the concept of inordinate life-ruling desires for lust, craving, yearning, and greedy demands. It's not necessarily always lust of the flesh is bad things. 
you can have idols in other things, right? Am I, am I making this up? Like, am I the only person that struggles and thinks that the lust of the flesh has often been perceived as only bad things? Ask yourself today. Ask yourself today, and I asked myself as prepping this, what is taking priority in my heart? How can I walk in the Spirit if something else is God? If some, and, and ask yourself this question, if that was taken away from you, hypothetically, what would happen? What would happen? Would you lose your relationship with God? Would you lose your hope in life? If you lost the thing that you think is, oh, I, don't, I have a healthy relationship, when I have boundaries with this situation, I, I know, I know. Sometimes we deceive ourselves into believing that actually some of the good things in life, and I'm not, listen, I'm not saying, I'm not on the extreme of saying anything good is bad. No, no, let's not go down. I'm saying, ask yourself a question logically. Is there something in my life that has taken priority over God? Is there something in my life that has hindered me from actually really walking in the Spirit? Is there something in my life that I think about first over God in every single circumstance of my life? So while the flesh glorifies and adores and yearns for all kinds of created things and conditions and people, the Spirit glorifies and adores and yearns for Jesus. When the Spirit is working richly in my heart, he is constantly, again, back to week two, pointing me to Christ, pointing me to him, encouraging me. The Spirit speaks of the beauty and the greatness of Christ. The Spirit then longs to show us Christ and conform us to Christ. I don't want you guys to think that I'm saying today that, you know, you shouldn't make your family's priority. You shouldn't take care of the responsibilities that you have. But what, were to ha- what would happen truly if you were to lose this thing? Would you say, as Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord? Or would you curse him? Would you hate him? And I'm not saying the Lord does it. The Lord, by the way, will never take something from you out of like, ha, 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 I want to show you that I love you. You should love me more. He's not like that. But this is a check for us in this moment of what is my relationship with God predicated on. Look at what verse 19 and 21 says. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry. By the way, this is something the church doesn't like to talk about. We don't like to take Galatians chapter 5 because it's hard. It's calling us out on our garbage. We like the fluffy verses and the things that, you know, are saying God loves you through all your stuff, and he does. But again, love requires a, res- a response. Love requires a response. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresy, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, scariest verse in the Bible, just as I told you in the past that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How many of us read Galatians 5 and fast forward right off of this verse? Ah, Buna, what's the big deal? What's the big deal, Buna? What's the big deal if I do a little bit of this, a little bit of that? You love me, you forgive me. Fair, I love you and I forgive you, but you're, you get conditioned, you leave a little bit of room, you compromise over and over and over again, you no longer know my voice. You no longer know how to come back. You no longer know how to find me. You no longer know who I am even to begin with. You look as you break down this passage, it says the works of the flesh are evident. 
If every single one of us were to pause and ask ourselves the question, am I living according to the flesh? Well, take Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 21 as a self-evaluation tool. Am I lusting, adultery and fornication? You know, actually the words for sexual immorality or adultery and fornication is the word pornea. Pornea. For the sexual intercourse between unmarried people is another word that's used, like when you take the Greek words that are mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 21, they're a little bit different. They have long, stronger uh, sort of connotations. And the word 20, from, for verse 20, sorcery, hatred, idolatry, all of these things are asking yourself, yeah, maybe some of us aren't doing witchcraft anymore or sorcery. You know, if you go to Kenya, you'll see black magic and voodoo done all the time. But here we don't do that stuff because actually there's no need for it. The devil has all of us working for him, right? No need for him to come in to do black magic and voodoo and sorcery. He has every single one of us, me first and foremost, working by causing what? Hatred, contention, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissension, heresy, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries. Again, this is a long list. It's like stressful as you even read it. You're like, man, I look within myself and I see a lot of myself in this. But look how beautiful God is. God is beautiful in the fact that he calls us out on our garbage but never leaves us. He never leaves us. There's always hope. Look at the next verse after 21. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Notice how he doesn't say fruits. Because a lot of people like to say the fruits. The fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, is joy, is peace, is long-suffering, is kindness, is goodness, is faithfulness, is gentleness, is self-control. Against such there is no law. Against such there is no law. 1921, harsh. 2223, encouraging. It says you want to check yourself and you want to see where you are Take 19 and 21 and put them next to your life. And then take 22 and 23. Am I living in the Spirit? Am I bearing fruit? Notice it's not, again, it's not multiple things. One who's in the Spirit lives all of these things. It's one fruit. You are loving. You have joy. You have peace. You have long-suffering. You have kindness. You have goodness. You have faithfulness. You have gentleness and self-control. There's a process here, though, that happens. Four things is that the process is gradual. The process is, I don't think any, any person today is going to say, Abuna, okay, now, I'm ready to walk in the Spirit. It's gradual. You plant a seed, what happens? And I like how St. Paul uses the imagery of botan botanical stuff, like planting. With growth in the fruit of the Spirit, it happens over time. Ask yourself a few years ago, when something really frustrated you, how did you respond? Did you respond angry? Did you flip out? Did you lose your cool? Versus now, if you're growing in the spirit, if you live, are living in the fruit of the spirit, what happens? You're living a more controlled, you have more tempered, and you're more patient. So the catalyst is to say, where was I three years ago? How did I respond to things three years ago? And where am I today? Am I growing? The process is gradual, but if I am yearning for God and living in the spirit, it's going to happen over time that I'm going to start to see, yeah, a few years ago, I was temperamental and angry, but now things are changing. Yeah, six months ago, you insulted me, I would insult you right back, but the Spirit is working in me. Also, it's inevitable. Those who immerse themselves in the Spirit, who really are hungry for Him, it happens. There is going to be growth. You plant a seed. 
if you take a, a little seed and you put it under a rock, right? And that seed is given enough moisture even under the rock, what happens? That seed is going to break right through that rock. If you bet your money on who would win, the seed or the rock, you would say the rock. But there are many situations in which a seed was planted underneath a rock and that seed grew up, brought out a big, beautiful tree, and that rock got destroyed in the process. It's inevitable. Those who put themselves in a relationship with God, fruit will happen. It's not something that, oh, if I work, if I do this, if I do this. No, my only responsibility is to immerse myself in the presence of God. My only, situ- my only responsibility is to put myself in a situation where growth can happen. And the goal is, is not to have gradual, just inevitable roots that take forth. You want internal roots. You want these characteristics to be really deep. You don't want them to be moved by the situations that happen in life. You want them to be deeply rooted strength that gets built from being in a relationship with God, with the Holy Spirit working in me. It's not about characteristics. By the way, something really challenged me about this specific point, about internal roots. Is be careful. Don't think your gifts, your natural gifts, are an indication of the Holy Spirit working in you. Somebody checked me on this. Say you have the gift of being able to speak. And people are moved by your speaking. Does that mean you're filled by the Holy Spirit? Or does that mean that the Spirit is working in the people that are listening to be moved and the Spirit is working despite you? That's a check, right? It checks you. It makes you actually ask yourself the question, am I bearing fruit? Like, is, am I really living a, a fruitful life? Well, if I look at myself and I check myself, am I loving Am I living in joy? Do I have peace? Do I have long-suffering? Am I kindness? Do I have goodness? Do I have faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? I want those roots to be deep where I don't believe that it's just I'm banking on my gifts to believe that I'm spirit-filled. You could be the greatest preacher in the world, but you could be the biggest jerk at home. You could be the greatest shemesh, deacon, best voice, but you could be the most judging, critical, disrespectful person. You can be the most compassionate Sunday school servant in the classroom, but behind closed doors, you're standing in front of your parents, you're disrespectful as heck. The fruit of the Spirit, by the way, guys, is not situational. It's not predicated on where I am. It's no matter where I am, I'm rooted. It's deep. And again, it comes symmetrical. All of it coalesces together. It's not just one and not the other. It's everything's together. St. Paul uses specifically the word fruit of the Spirit. So when we look at the list of the fruit, when we look at every single one of us, ask yourself this question today. Am I really walking in the Spirit? Am I natural strengths what I'm relying on? Or am I asking the Spirit of God to work in me, to change me, and to conform me, conform me into the image of Christ? Am I really longing for change? And I'll be honest with you, nobody wants to hear this sermon. It's a hard sermon to preach. It's a hard sermon to preach because everybody wants a Buddha to puff them up. Everybody wants a Buddha to tell them, you're awesome, you are the best church in the world. And everybody wants a Buddha to say, you know, this, but I'm telling you guys, this is what I need and this is what we all need. We need to all check ourselves and to not depend on our own strength and our own following of the law to make ourselves believe that we're living spirit-filled life. Look what happens. Final, final thing. I know it's 1230. Forgive me. And those who are, crucif- who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Those who are what? Who are Christ's. If you know you belong to Christ, if he's yours, if my beloved is mine and I am his, as Song of Solomon says, if I know that I am my beloved's, if I know how much he cares for me, I'm going to crucify the flesh. It's the byproduct. I'm not going to have any desire greater than him. Nothing is going to take priority over him. Nothing is going to long, nothing's going to pull on my heart more than him. And if I belong to him, then I need to keep in step with the spirit. I need to live in the spirit. I need to check myself every single day and ask myself, how does my life match with Galatians chapter 5? Again, do I fast forward through Galatians chapter 5 or do I really look to and say, this is not just an intellectual exercise. It's not something that each of us just think through and sort of fast forward through. But ask yourself this week, how much do I match with Galatians chapter 5? Am I walking in the spirit and am I growing in him? And if not, ask him. Say, Holy Spirit, fill me with your fruit. Say, Holy Spirit, encourage me. Teach me all things. Bring me to remembrance of the things which Christ has taught me. Holy Spirit, fill me with your presence so that I can really be adopted as a son. So I can really have a conversion in my heart. So it's not just a conversion of words, but it's a conversion of life. Help me, O Holy Spirit, to be a person who is constantly pouring into other people. Help me, O Holy Spirit, crucify my own selfish desires. Help me, O Holy Spirit, that if I'm struggling with a certain thing, let me tr believe in the victory of the resurrection of Christ. Anyone who's struggling with a sin this afternoon, any one of us who is burdened by something, there is victory, there's freedom, there's power from the, 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 the power that is on high and the power that dwells within. There is nothing that can hinder the Spirit of God working within us except me. So my encouragement to every single one of us this week is as we are going through this season of the Holy Spirit, if I really want to walk in the Spirit, if I really want God to fill me, if I really want this church to be a place where the glory of God dwells, where am I? Where am I? Where am I? The, the priest is, ought to be the repentant amongst repentance. If the priest is repenting, his congregation repents. So it's, my, it's me. It starts with me. It starts with my own acknowledgement of my brokenness, my own acknowledgement of the fact that maybe I'm not living according to Galatians 5. And I pray that every single one of us, because God loves us and because he yearns for us, that we would be moved to really check ourselves. Take, take it. Take it, Galatians chapter 5, read it on your own, evaluate. Don't say because Abuna said, take it on your own, evaluate. And ask yourself, am I wondering why I'm not changing? Am I wondering why my household is still filled with wars? Am I wondering why I'm feeling like I'm reading my Bible and things aren't changing? Because maybe I really haven't been willing to do whatever it takes. I've left that door cracked. We need a whatever it takes mentality to really be a spirit-filled church. Whatever it takes for me to know you, God. May God fill us with his peace. May his Holy Spirit dwell richly in us. May his Holy Spirit encourage us, support us, and allow us that, to know that we are truly free in him. That we're not free by any other means but him. Glory be to God forever. Amen. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.